0: So, Michael, thank you. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: So I looked at your background and sometimes when I interview people, they have varied backgrounds and they come in and out of different educations and stuff. But when I look at your background, you were marketing, always marketing all the way through. Yes. You know, <laughs> so you just love it, did you?
1: Yeah, I was very fortunate. I worked. My early career was actually working in newspapers and Admittedly, this was sort of pre-internet or in the early stages of the internet, so I was one of those nerds on IRC doing sort of internet stuff. And working in the newspaper business, I had a program that I was on that gave me the opportunity to work in every department to fully understand the business. So you spend about three months on the subs desk, in photography, in distribution, in editorial. And I landed in the marketing team for a while and they were working on a particular project and it was just so easy. It just came so naturally to me to say, okay, we're doing this for this client, Well, why don't we do this as the campaign? And everyone's eyes kind of bugged out of their head and like, that's really clever. And I thought to myself, actually, that was really easy and fun. So I actually saw marketing being straightforward about it as a sort of 20-something-year-old. I actually saw it as something where I could just exercise creativity and fun and get paid for it. So it was a natural choice early. And then it was, wasn't until I started lecturing at university in marketing that I really saw the distinction between consumer marketing and B2B, and I fell in love with B2B marketing.
0: So, I mean, the lines between consumer marketing and B2B are blurring, but just give people sort of basic rundown of sort of the slight differences.
1: I think, although it's not true in all circumstances, it's sometimes helpful to use the extreme as an example so in consumer marketing, it's, I think you've got more opportunity to use emotion and appeals to emotional and you know, status-based type things than you may do in B2B. And the thing I like about B2B or what attracts me to it is that although emotion comes into it and relationship comes into the purchase process, it still has to be built off a of fact base. It still has to be an evidence-based business case as to why product A is better than product B and somewhat flippantly, but a fleet manager isn't going to believe you that buying 16 of company X's forklifts is going to make them more attractive or sort of more socially acceptable. Like they really want to see the business case. So high level consumer marketing is a product intended mostly for an individual or a family or something like that. And B2B is buying on behalf of a business. So it's a much more sophisticated purchase process in my mind. Mm,
0: yes. And when you say sophisticated... Are you referring to the number of sort of stakeholders you have to appeal to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We did a, actually did a project quite some years ago for a bathroom fixtures manufacturing company, and we did consumer research in that. So we're, we're actually very well qualified and skilled in consumer marketing. It's just, we choose to be in the B2B space. And in the consumer marketing space, the research we did proved that nine out of every $10 spent on bathroom renovations, the decision was made by a female, 26 to 55, and a whole bunch of demographics around that. Whereas in the business, although you may be speaking to procurement or the fleet manager or something like that, there's at least six or seven other people sometimes who can influence that buying decision and you may never get to speak to them. So that's a complex, invisible buying committee that sits behind the contact that you might have. And you might think you've got the deal secured, but you actually need to assemble and influence maybe another half a dozen to a dozen people inside that business. So
0: when you have a half a dozen or, or more people that you have to influence, how do you prioritize where to start? Or is it do you have to figure out trial and error on the entry pointers?
1: One of the ways that we approach that is that we take the view that we can't assume anything and that the best way for us to get that information is to actually ask the customer directly. And I don't mean necessarily the customer we're talking to because they may not tell you. So the contact you're talking to will have their own veil of secrecy around how the machinery works. So the work that we do, we will conduct independent customer interviews across that buying committee. And we will look at, I'll use an example, for example, in the building and construction space, which you're very close to, we will conduct long-form qualitative interviews. So not quant, long-form qualitative interviews with architects, specifiers, builders, project managers, installers, the building owner. And what we are able to do in that is actually understand not only what is driving that buying behavior, but how much influence do they have on the overall decisions? So depending on the product, depending on the industry, different positions in the business will actually have overwhelmingly strong or weak influence on the buying decisions. So we try and map that, we try and grade it, and then we direct our micro-marketing message to a specific audience and with the idea in mind to say, well, we know what they want and what they need, but we also know how much influence they've got so we make decisions around an investment.
0: Yeah. So, in sort of general sense, when you go in and research these people that obviously they're not customers because customers might not tell you, how do you compensate them? What's the sample size? How do you sort of approach creating a level of validity that you can rely on?
1: One of the things we do when we're working with a client, we will help them identify who should be interviewed in that process. So, we aim to speak to their existing customers. And the reason we do that is that if you're speaking to somebody who's never done business with the organization, you're really engaging in a whole series of hypotheticals and you get generic responses. But when you deal with one of their direct customers in that role, you get real life case studies and examples of what went wrong, what worked, what didn't work, how it affected their business. It's a much more live and actually emotion-rich conversation. And we balance that with a series of parallel interviews with people from our own network. We have a highly developed and curated network of subject matter experts across the range of categories that we work in. And then we sense check what we've heard from the customers with an architect who who is in our network. Generally, they don't want compensation. You've got the opportunity of giving a voucher or something like that. And sometimes they say, oh, thanks, but I was actually kind of just interested in having the conversation. And we try not to incentivize it because we think that it can distort their responses.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, how do you approach selecting the proper questions to ask in terms of trying to pull that insight out? Because not the customers or clients may not always know what they're looking for or what, what they need.
1: It's a terrific question. We create very comprehensive interview guides, and those guides direct the whole series of areas that we want to uncover with the client. So it's not a series of on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love me type questions. The questions that we ask the customers are deliberately open ended. When I'm explaining this to my customers, I say, look, a couple of things. One is that when we talk to your customer, we tell them that their answers are confidential in as much as they will not be attributed to them. And because we're speaking to such a wide group of people, it's just going to get aggregated up into a general report. So if you think Bob's a bad rep, you can say Bob's a bad rep. And that gives them some comfort. They go, oh, okay. So that's the first step must be confidential, not attributable. Mm. The second thing we say is that this is largely your interview. You are free to speak about the issues that matter to you and are important to you. So we have some themes that we'd like to explore. However, if you trip upon something that really matters to you and you're sharing that with us, we will not interrupt you. We just came to listen and hear. And then when I explain it to my customers, I say our actions look more like a marriage counsellor, as in we just ask questions. Well, what did that mean to you? Well, how did that impact you? And what would you like to do about that? And we also never defend our customer. So if they complain about something, if the customer interview says, look, sometimes they get their order deliveries wrong our question is, that sounds challenging. What's the impact on you? And what we find is that the customer exhausts themselves in telling us everything that matters. And at the end of the interview for them, it's probably like they've had a therapy session (laughs) because they go, man, that was great to get all of that stuff off my chest. And I'm so glad that the company's interested in hearing this stuff. And the longest interview that we've done is probably close to three hours. We often will only schedule 20 minutes, as in we say we need 20 minutes in your diary because if you ask for an hour, they won't give it to you. We ask for 20 minutes, but we will never terminate the interview. If they've still got stuff to say, we end up with pages and pages and pages of notes. So anyway, I hope that gives you some insight into how we do it. The last part I just want to quickly cover is you asked, how do you know if it's reliable, if the sample size is right? Because it's not quant, we're really looking for insights. And once you've spoken to a dozen architects who do business with this particular client, or once you've spoken to six or eight different project managers, that once you get to the point where there's very little variations in the themes and there's no new logs under the waterline, we say, we think we've got enough from this to form some solid views.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Repetition and no new answers. Now, from there, I mean, I'm assuming research, then you go into strategy, I guess. How do you pull the insights that you have into a strategy? What's your
1: process there? Sure. There's a number of different ways you can tackle it. I mean, the customer interviews are one part of the process. We just focus on competitive strategy. So we don't try and solve the whole of business strategy, which might include other things. We just look at how do you drive top-line revenue growth? So that looks at customers, markets, products, channels to market, those sorts of things. The three areas that we interrogate heavily is really the market drivers and dynamics. So what is the overall market picture? What's happening in it and what's impacting it? Secondly, is that that customer buying behavior? And the third one is competitive analysis. So what are the competitive tensions that are going to try and interfere with your value proposition to that customer base? So how do you do that? One part of what we do, which we think is super important, is a genuine assessment of the organisational capability. So it's one thing to identify an opportunity in the market and a set of customers who want a particular thing. It's a very different process to take that hard fact-based analytical view of what is our organisational capability to capture that and what are the competitive assets that we would need to build and develop, either acquire or improve, to capture that. And to be honest, that's one of the areas where I find that many strategy plans fail is because the opportunity is well identified. Oh, the market's this big and there's all these customers and this is how much they spend. Go get them tiger. And I look at that and say, well, competitive strategy is actually, it's not just the identification of the opportunity, it's the recognition that a whole series of competitive assets need to be built inside the organization and deployed in sequence against that opportunity and measured in a structured and sophisticated way to get the feedback to say, is this working? Are we going in the right way here?
0: Okay. You had a lot of things there, but let's, let's pick uh, one of those things, which is evaluating competencies, organizational competencies. How mm. do you do that? When do you start the company trying to figure out their ability to execute and I guess build what you said, organizational tools or what was the
1: word you used? Competitive assets.
0: Competitive assets. So yeah. how, how, do you, how do you assess their ability internally?
1: The first step is to actually understand what the customers are looking for. So it's better to do that once you've completed the customer interviews, because then you've got a very clear recipe of, well, this is what your customers actually want. And this is what they think of your current performance. So this is what you do well. This is what you do poorly. These are the opportunities for you to improve let's do a fact-based assessment of that. So that can be things like simple things like introducing net promoter score, that can be looking at error rates in delivery, that can be looking at where credit notes are raised. One of the most intriguing things I find is that the data is always there. When you go to look inside the organisation, they say, oh, we've got really, really high customer satisfaction. So you say, great, could you give me a, a list of all the credit notes that were raised in the last quarter? And then there's great discomfort because that actually reveals where the errors were. And the customer interviews will often identify those sorts of things. We find that it's better that the evidence either from customer feedback or from the data points inside the business are the proof points to those organizational capabilities rather than trying to get the customer to grade it themselves or us to evaluate them. We just say, here's the data. What does that tell you?
0: Mm, Interesting. And then from there, what are examples of these? assets you're
1: talking about? Great question. I mean, one of the competitive assets is the positioning and communication. So for example, a sophisticated marketing engine is a competitive asset. And as you'd know, segmentation within that and segmented messaging within that marketing system, marketing automation is a competitive asset, skilled, a properly built sales leadership and sales team with the right assets for them to go and have those sophisticated conversations with the customers. And these are quite simple things that I'm talking about, but they're so uncommon. And what I mean by that is that if you've done the work of segmenting your customer base and you identify that there's nine different buyers or influencers inside that customer organization, depending on which one you're having a conversation with, the sales team needs to have the sophistication and the tools to have that discussion with them and exclusively that discussion with them and not be tempted to just tell the whole organizational story. So these things are quite rare. And I think that a really solid alignment between the marketing insights from the strategy piece and then sales capability is one competitive asset that I would look at to say that is hugely important for success.
0: Interesting. Just to put that into sort of context of building materials, when you're talking to a distributor, you're having a distributor level conversation, your materials appeal to what is important to the distributors. If you're talking to a contractor, having a contractor level discussion and the assets or the materials support the value proposition that's appealing to the contractor.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's tempting to tell the whole story, but that customer doesn't care. They care about what they care about. If they're a project manager, they've got a series of things that are on their agenda and that's it. And anything outside of that is simply an irritation or a distraction. So I find that if you can get this right and it's possible to get it right, that what happens is that project manager or whoever the end client is there starts to preference you because they say they don't waste my time. They get it done. It's the right product. But every time I have a conversation with them, it's just the stuff that I need. And it's pretty basic stuff. But it's like I say, when it's missed, it costs the businesses a lot in terms of revenue, margin, market share. Wonderful.
0: And you, you mentioned something really interesting. I think you said something about competitors disrupting strategy or your market position. Yes. I find that's quite missing in most business plans. Yes. But i love to for you to expand on that. How do you assess the ability for a competitor to impede your progress into a market or sort of segment?
1: It's a great question. The way we look at competitors, I should say my background in terms of Everett Field with my business partner, we met in a business that was owned by private equity. So we're not private equity guys, but it was a private equity owned business. My business partner was the CEO and I was running marketing and strategy. And We have a very crystal clear lens on what that looks like. And most competitive analysis that I have seen, and I've seen hundreds of documents, are actually quite weak when it comes to understanding the competitor's true superpower. So the competitive analysis that I've seen in many instances is just a series of, well, you know, they've got three locations, you've got two, they've got 20 trucks, you've got six, they've got six Facebook likes, you've got 600. None of this stuff is competitive analysis. This is kind of an interesting assembly of facts. What we look for is what is the underlying competitive superpower that that organization has that is so strong that we would not be able to topple it and we would waste critical resources in pursuing it? And what is the weak underbelly where they simply don't have defenses where we can carve out market share? So what's our straightest line to growth? So when we look at a competitive analysis, we look beyond the surface, and I'll give you a very quick example. We did a project for an organization that sold commercial batteries, large-scale commercial batteries for, for all sorts of things, for generators and these sorts of things. And when we looked at their immediate three competitors, it was a whole series of same-same. And we cast the net much wider, and we looked at about 12 to 13 competitors, and we found a tiny little competitor that really didn't make a blip on the radar. But when we dug into them, we found that they had recently been acquired by private equity. And then when we looked at the private equity firm that had purchased them, they'd done a whole series of these little micro-purchases. So there was clearly a market consolidation that was going to come into play, which was funded. And then we looked at the behaviour of that private equity firm with other market consolidations that they had done. So where their superpowers lay, So on that long strand of 13 competitors, the most serious competitor was the smallest one because of some activity that had happened in that business. And to us, that's a true competitive analysis because you're really getting down to the granular detail of what is everything in that competitive landscape that is likely to torpedo our efforts. And it isn't just they've got six salespeople and you've got four. That's not the answer.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how do you approach a more comprehensive, competitive analysis obviously you're not digging in their garbage so
1: what do you do? <laughs> look it's the competitive analysis is is desktop research and other the competitive analysis you really just need to look at what are the readily available facts about the industry around the competitors most of our clients are private businesses so there is not a lot of information that's available in terms of the way they run their business and those sorts of things so You have to be an excellent researcher. You have to be an excellent researcher online. And you also have to be able to think nimbly around, well, how are we going to get this data? So I'll give you an example. One piece of work that we did, we're trying to work out how much revenue we thought a competitor did. And we didn't really have any information at all. But what we did have is Google Maps will show us an aerial view of the size of the footprint of their premises. And that will give you some sense of, what production capability sits inside those premises and roughly how many vans are going in and out of that location every day so you can start to sort of look at things like that and say this is not this is not a precise you know KPMG audit but it's a rule of thumb to say we think it's about that much and then what we do is we in most instances we've actually build three or four different models and then pressure test them against each other to get a sense of what's What's really happening? It isn't just looking at their Facebook page and website. You really have to think very, very innovatively as to where you're going to get that data from.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I like that. Now, oh, there's so many places I can go with this. Okay. So give me some examples of competitive advantages or superpowers that you've seen in different companies, just for people that want to understand. It's not the size of the Facebook page or whatever.
1: Sure. There was one example, and I won't name the company, but we did some work with a client who sells a particular product. And what we discovered in review of their sales process was that they had an online quotation system. And once we analysed that online quotation system, what we found is that if quotes were generated within the first hour of receiving it, they would win something like 60 plus percent of the business. And for every minute after that hour had elapsed, the the degradation, the erosion of that win rate was just horrific. It was a death spiral. So if that was three hours, you're down to, I don't know, 5 10% or something like that. So we looked at the importance of being able to get quotes to the customer as quickly as possible. And we sort of formed the view temporarily just as a framing device to say, you're not in the product X business, you're actually in the quotation business So, because that's where your business comes from. You're winning 60 plus percent of it. So what happens if we can get the quote in half hour? How does that change your conversion rates? What if we can get it in 15 minutes? How does that change conversion rates? What if we can get it in five minutes? How does that change conversion rates? So we focused exclusively for a period of time in terms of a project on building a really sophisticated quotation engine that could give them live quotes on demand with live chat to help them through the process and those sorts of things and it spectacularly changed their performance as a business in terms of conversion rates now that's one part of a broader set of competitive assets but that's that's an example but when you look at superpowers it really or competitive strengths in superpowers you really look at things that might not be obvious so for example a simple one in the capital equipment market we work with clients in the in the mining space and a couple of things that were of key importance there one is lifetime cost of ownership so most other people were focusing on the cost of the vehicle and you know how cheaply they could assemble it within the customer's requirements but if you change the framing of that and say sure our product is a premium product but what we want to do is we actually want to explore with you and collaborate with you on lifetime cost of ownership and we want to show you what that looks like we want to show you how The specific design choices that we've made, although they do cost more, they reduce workplace injury. They increase, one example is in trucks for the mining business by changing the way the steps get into the trucks. It actually increased female participation in the workplace because the trucks are kind of built for blokes to climb up onto and those sorts of things. The customers wanted steps that were more accessible for often slightly smaller build people. And then we said, well, let's do the maths behind that. So, how does increased female participation in the workplace affect the business in a positive way what's the benefit that happens from that and one of the benefits we found is that women actually treat capital equipment better than men they don't trash the trucks <laughs> there's, there's less maintenance issues there's less crashes and these sorts of things so we actually built out a financial model around that to say by changing making these design choices and having a premium product your lifetime cost of ownership is actually dramatically reduced you're reducing Workplace injuries and you're increasing female participation in the workplace. And we knew from our customer interviews that they were key agenda items in the much broader picture of the business that might not have been on the radar of the fleet manager. So that's an example where you find an insight and you prosecute that insight to a much broader audience inside the organization. You win market share away from the competitors who say, I don't understand. Those guys are more expensive than us. We put in a really keen price and we still didn't win the deal.
0: Wonderful. It's lovely pulling out those key insights. You've been in marketing a while and I know you've judged awards and stuff like that. I think people come to you that are newer or in a few years in their marketing career and they ask you for advice for those people that come to you. What do you usually tell them?
1: The first piece of advice, if somebody's relatively new to the marketing industry, I just tell them to learn the whole business. Yes, of course, become expert in marketing but you need to understand the whole business. You need to walk the floor. So if there's any opportunity at all for you to go and visit a customer, you should take it. If there's a site visit, you should take it. If there's a product demo from your customer, go and see that product demo. Understand, join a sales meeting from your customer and don't join the sales meeting to present marketing and extol the virtues of marketing. Go there with an absolute open mind of curiosity and say, help me understand this from your perspective. I think that marketers who see themselves as just an amplifier of what's good inside the business. And all they've got to do is kind of put the microphone around to pick up the sounds that they want and the cues that they want. If they see themselves as an amplifier of it, then they will learn to listen. And I think if they see themselves as the answer to all the things in the business, then they will probably fail. (laughs)
0: Well said, (laughs) Gregor. Well, Michael, it was, I think you could go probably days talking about this topic, but I, I really, really appreciate you sharing your knowledge.
1: Thank you. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to chat with you and I look forward to further conversations. I'm really appreciative of the time you've invested in me today.
0: All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more see you over there